0: Hi, Cecile. Nice to see you. Hi, you?
1: Pat.
2: Yeah, I'm, yeah, how are you? I miss you.
1: Me too. <laughs> Sorry. I was, um, it is a, it's so annoying that while you're doing other things on the app, like, uh, at topics and all these things, you cannot control the microphone. Like, <laughs> it's so annoying.
2: Um, yeah, it's hard. Yeah.
3: Hello.
1: Hello, Mike. How are you? Thanks for coming.
3: Excellent. Yeah, no problem. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad it's working. I was about to write you an email to see if I was in the right place.
1: Yeah, um, let's wait a few minutes and um, we'll start um, in like four to five minutes. Thank you. Great.
3: Yeah, great.
2: Hey, Katarina, this is Victoria. Are you Hi, there? Hi, Victoria.
1: Are you? Yep. I'm here. We, we're just waiting. <laughs> sure. Few... Yeah. We yes. opened the, the room a little bit before to give people time to find the room and then yes, we'll Yes, I, hear, I heard. I was just wondering if you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the rooms that are coming up tomorrow as well while we had people in here or whatever. Um yeah thank you. Um usually I do it towards the end but um to not like confuse people but thank you Victoria for reminding me it's it's really good because sometimes I forget about this. So yeah thank you. yeah um (laughs) no don't worry um thank you for reminding me and um hi eric um okay i think we can slowly start uh with introducing um mike to to our club and the audience so um, yeah, welcome everyone to um, Science Society. We are very honored to have uh, Dr. Michael Levine. And here he, we had the room with him before with this colleague Josh Bongard. So uh, some of you might um, know him. And um, yeah, we have a very like it's uh, we are discussing a very um interesting work of his uh, when i read it i thought that this is one of the most important uh, preprints i read uh, for this time um we are in so uh, it's very broad and it goes into very um interesting and breakthrough topics so um yeah i think this work everyone that kind of thinks about the minds the future consciousness of the future uh intelligence of the future also um medical developments of the future needs to read this <laughs> so that's why cecile and i we uh, invited um michael back to talk about this because we thought it was um such an important and amazing um work but um first let me introduce you to mike for everyone that doesn't know him yet um um dr michael levine he um got his um dual bachelor of science degrees in biology and computer science and he did his phd in um, harvard and genetics and then later, he did a postdoc also in Harvard at the, in cell biology. And in 2000, he started his own lab at the Forces Institute. And he is now at Tufts University and Harvard's Swiss Institute. Um, his, group, his group works at, at the intersection of devel- developmental biophysics cognitive science and computer science and his mission is to understand how larger minds arise out of proto-cognitive subunits in diverse media um yeah he he he's a distinguished professor he won a lot of different awards and in 1995 he was chosen by the journal nature as a um his, his work as a milestone in developmental biology in the last century so, yeah, we are very honored um, to have you, Mike. Uh, we appreciate the time you make available for us. And, uh, yeah, the stage is yours.
3: Well, thank you so much. That's a very kind introduction. Um, and uh, pretty much I'll just take questions. Uh, the, the only thing I want to say is that the preprint itself has, has, <clears throat> has been now improved quite a bit uh over the last uh i don't know month or so and so there's a final version that's going to come out in a in one of the frontier journals i'll i'll put it up on on my website of course and i'll tweet about it when it does come up the final version is quite a bit better i think than the than the preprint so uh you know check out check out that uh, that final version when it's there but i think the main ideas are here so yeah if anybody is interested in specific parts please let's uh, let's chat about it
1: Yeah, I don't know if you want to give like a short overview of what sure. you okay. wanted to um, address when you wrote it. Um, okay. If not, yeah. we'll ask specific questions.
3: Yeah, that's 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 fine. I can I can give I can give a broad overview. So, uh, the, the this 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 is the second paper in a series, and it is actually the the third one is uh, being worked on at the moment. Um, that started a few years ago at a it was a it was a templeton uh, foundation conference in scotland on diverse intelligences and we were we were challenged to come up with a framework in which truly diverse intelligences could be compared with each other and what i when when i heard that i thought i thought that was an, an extremely important thing to do because when i say truly diverse i don't just mean You know, humans, uh, parrots, octopus, uh, dogs, things like that. I mean, truly diverse. In other words, given the bioengineering technologies, the, you know, possibly possible exobiology, possible um, uh, uh, artificial AI, whether software or hardware, I'm talking about any, any possible agent, we ought to be able to have some kind of central invariant for what it means to be an intelligent agent that isn't tied to what you're made of or how you got here, meaning evolved versus design. I, I fundamentally take those things to be um, really contingent facts about something, not very not, not something that's deep. Um, and I, I don't think there's any privileged the substrate for cognition or intelligence. I mean, brains are not the only thing that, um, that, that that count as intelligent agents and so I started and so the first paper was was uh, was in frontiers also in 2018 the selves paper and then this is next and so what I tried to do is to come up with a few key uh, ways to think about um, cognition and in particular this this, this paper in particular defines uh, my framework with the acronym tame taME which stands for technological approach to mind everywhere. The idea being that all of these ideas have to be empirically useful. That is, we we can't just have philosophical um, sort of armchair preconceptions about what should and shouldn't be a cognitive system. We, we we need to have views that drive experiments that enable novel capabilities. And so so everything everything in this framework is all about uh, developing empirically useful definitions of of agency, of intelligence, of of memory, of of behavior. All of these things that um, expand rather than being restrictive, they're supposed to expand the kinds of experiments you can think of doing, right? They're supposed to feed um, creativity and and then be empirically testable. So, so that's the goal. And I can I can talk more specifically if people have questions about which you know kind of parts of it we can we can talk about how I how I define all of these uh, all of these different terms. But um, all of it is is sort of centered around two two main ideas uh and one of them is is this idea of continuity it's this it's the emphasis on all of the inter the fact that all of the interesting terms in this field like intelligence like cognition and so on are not binary categories i think it's it's a really bad mistake to uh try to ask questions like is something a cognitive agent or is something intelligent or does something have memories or, or or things like that because that leads to all sorts of pseudo problems for reasons that that, that um, I can describe um, that are not in fact uh, the, the you know that are not in fact uh, addressing things in a, in a deep way. But everything is a continuum, and the right questions for all of this is how much and what kind, and and we can we can talk about that. And so so that's so that's the first thing that there's this real continuity, and I think bioengineering now, chimeric technologies, bioengineering, and even aside from that, just an appreciation of ourselves as uh, beings that are presumably cognitive that used to be one cell each of us was just a single cell at some point a collection of molecular pa- molecular pathways and we all made this amazing journey across the Cartesian cut from uh, just a you know just a collection of, uh, of molecular pathways to a large being that has centralized perspective preferences goals memories and so on um, so so continuity and then and then the idea of goal directedness. So this this notion and, and, and in my paper, I, I, I formalize it and sort of make it semi quantitative, this idea that you can you can gauge the intellectual sophistication of any agent, regardless of what it's made of or how it how it arose. You can gauge the uh, sophistication of an agent by looking at what are the largest goal states that it's capable of pr- uh, uh, pursuing. So, in space and time, what are the the largest states that it's capable of caring about? another way sort of an inverse way of looking at it has to do with stress and asking about um what are the states of affairs what are the the biggest states of affairs that a that a system can possibly feel stress about and um and i think you know if you tell me what you're stressed about i can i can make a pretty good guess at what kind of uh on on this on the scale of uh of uh, of what i call a scale of persuadability which is uh, which is sort of a way to um uh, uh arrange different types of agents with respect to uh how much uh, and, you know how rich their cognitive lives are we can kind of tell where you are on that scale based on what are the sorts of things that stress you out all the way from very simple things like uh, local sugar concentration which will stress bacteria to global um you know global of uh, uh, financial you know financial market states and uh the well-being of of, of uh, people on a different continent and so on so very small states very large states and so on and everything in between. So that's that. I think is a uh, kind of a, a ten thousand foot view of what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to come up with a framework that really uh, tries to pick out what is uh, what is central and what is an invariant among all cognitive systems, as a way to help us relate to those systems, so understand them, predict them, in some se- in some cases control them, and in other cases communicate with them and relate to them in a you know kind of at a higher plane. So that's the that's the introduction
1: yeah thank you so much i think it's uh it's a great introduction and overview um and um i before you know if it's okay i'll ask um or i make a few comments um actually what i really liked about um your paper is the very um rational approach of the mind um you know to take um uh, this from a practical perspective, uh, I think that is you know what we need to do, and um to also take the human mind off the pedestal, or even the mammalian um network basically approach, uh, that there are many ways to get um there, and uh we need to have a more open um uh, minded approach, uh. Uh, to distinguish like diverse uh, minds and, and intelligence. And what I thought it was also very interesting to think about the future where let's say a human is 95% human and 5% something else um, or maybe even just 5% human and um, the rest of technology basically. And that maybe with different rejuvenation techniques in the future um, stem cells and so on Um, the amount of the original material basically decreases over time and um uh, but in you describe basically that this is not a problem at all could you explain a little bit to the audience um what you think uh defines the the mind in this case and how what mechanisms, uh, you know, from your research that um, m- m- adapts to this uh, transient um, uh, modification over time of our organism, brain, mind.
3: Sure. Sure. Um, so, so I want to say a couple of things to, to that. Um, the, the first is let's just keep in mind, because I'm going to talk about all kinds of um, uh, un- kind of unconventional intelligences and, and, and all kinds of weird agents and, what's important is that this is always done in a very engineering sense meaning this is not this is not just just philosophy it's not just empty uh sort of you know i think that uh, all the rocks are sitting around having hopes and dreams the the idea is that all of this it, to the extent that it's uh, true and useful should be improving our technological capabilities so for example when i um treat uh cel- cellular collectives during embryogenesis as a collective intelligence it's because it allows us to achieve new things in regenerative medicine. It's because we figured out that you can actually communicate with the collective intelligence of cells with specific kinds of stimuli and reach outcomes that uh, were not available to uh, other approaches that uh, treat them bottom up uh, from as, as, as uh, genetically controlled machines and so on. So, so all of the, every, everything I'm about to say is um, uh, predicated on the idea that uh, we will find out how much of this is true and useful by specific experiment and a lot of these we've already done but there's 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 plenty more to do so every, everything is designed to be empirically grounded and and provide new ways to um to manipulate things like uh, growth and form in let's say regenerative medicine context. um uh okay so now so having said that uh to get to the to the point of uh what what happens uh to when uh, when 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 we really understand the f- the future of of bioengineering and chimerism uh Think about the fact that um, bi- biology is is incredibly interoperable, which means that I can take cells from different species, uh, in fact, very widely, di- very diverse uh, species of large evolutionary distance. I can I can uh, combine them to be a new organism. I can include electrodes, various nanomaterials, uh, you name it. Uh, you can you can combine things in in really amazing kinds of ways and every the result of all of this is always some kind of coherent new living being in other words biology is very interoperable and so what that means is that there's this really important tool called chimerism from from making chimeras making combinations of things that you can deploy as a thought experiment first but then but then actually at the bench and we're doing some of that and other people are doing some of that too uh, to really dissolve there, there was a nice phrase I forget who maybe Dan Dennett or somebody uh, used the phrase um, it's a it's a it's a conceptual acid and I think that's true I think I think chimerism is a kind of conceptual acid because it dissolves uh, all kinds of uh, prior categories that have stuck around not because they're, they're they're true or useful but but just because of technological limitations people couldn't really imagine how it could be otherwise uh, people for and so i'll give you some examples so so here's an example um uh, people often talk about the human brain you know the human brain does this the human brain does that and and you know and, and usually this is in the context of saying well other things don't do that and then they they use this 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 phrase uh, you know it's anthropomorphism uh, as if, as if humans had some sort of magical powers, that it would be terribly wrong to think that that these uh, some some version of these capacities exist outside. And and I, I always, when, whenever we argue about these things, I always point out to people that having having a sharp binary category of what a human is is completely unviable. And it's unviable. For, I'll tell a technological story, and then I'll remind us that we already, even before the technology, we already should have known it's not viable. Um, the technological story can go like this. It's very simple. Um, Uh, we already have humans that have various implants uh, that with various degrees of onboard intelligence that allows them to uh, control modified bodies. So for example, they run wheelchairs or assistive devices or um prosthetic limbs that may have new degrees of freedom that they didn't have before so so basically cyborgs right we, we already have people um with with all kinds of uh you know humans with all kinds of modifications that way so imagine imagine that you have a um <clears throat> you have you have a you have a house and in this house there is a, a human that is sort of the, the brain is 95 standard human brain and then five percent of that being is is something new it's uh it's 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 prosthetics <clears throat> with with some onboard AI perhaps that enable them to control devices wheelchairs vacuum cleaners uh, wh- You know, whatever it's going to be in so this this is not science fiction. This is already happening today Next door you have a slightly different you have a you have a different creature. What, what you have there is um, a, a Roomba, it's a it's a it's a computerized vacuum cleaner that is 95 percent vacuum cleaner, but on board it has some some human neural cells in a little cultured um, culture dish that uh, help uh, the Roomba make decisions about where it's going to go and what it's going to do. This also is not science fiction. This exists these are called hybrots and people have already produced uh, various types of artificial synthetic bodies for biological brains or in fact other cell types. So that already exists. So now you have 5% uh, human cells in a 95% robotic body so the important thing is that using these kind of technologies or in fact bioengineering we can produce any combination to any particular uh, uh, percentage breakdown so if you want uh, 70 30 percent right you want 80 20 uh, any percentage can be created and the combinations can be and so so I'm, i'm actually this is another paper i'm working on right now on the space of possible beings talking about how any combination of engineered material uh, evolved living material and software can potentially be combined to be a new creature so um what it is that you mean when you say a human brain when when it's very obvious that we can take steps away from the standard human brain and 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 sort of uh, make all kinds of in between um creations with new types of capacities new new types of uh, cogn- cognition we could we could engineer a brain with three hemispheres we could engineer a brain with cells from uh, a human brain with cells of of other species um all kinds of new architectures all of this is now possible and so any frameworks that we have for understanding what such creatures are can't possibly be based on some kind of firm uh, natural kind as if as if this was a you know a, a a standard this this, this was a, a very clear-cut thing that was obvious where you could obviously tell where something is a human brain or it's not it there's there's a there's an extremely smooth continuum and not only that it's a multi-dimensional continuum because you can alter it in lots of different capacities now even before the engineering allowed us to do all these things we should have already known for example j- just by taking evolution seriously right Pre- pre-evolutionary times you could imagine a kind of Garden of Eden story where there was a set of a discrete set of animals. Everybody knew what they were. You could number them. You could name them. You know, there's a great painting uh, I have that's uh, called the uh, Adam um, Names the Animals in the Garden of Eden. And uh, and that's it. There's a discrete set of animals. And, and we could say, OK, all of these animals have some particular kind of um, p- primitive uh, cognitive uh, capacity or maybe none. And then and then here are humans and it's a discrete uh, natural kind. But we don't live in that world anymore. We understand that there's a very smooth um uh, continuum of beings, all the way from modern humans all the way back basically to uh to single-cell organisms and 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 before that. And so again, uh whatever it is that you think uh human modern humans can do, you can track that back generation by generation. And even if you think something appeared, quote unquote, rapidly, where you know it's rapid, maybe on geological timescales but it's certainly slow on in the biological scale you will have every every creature had parents and uh, going all the way back and those parents eventually you track it down you go all the way back to single cell organisms so again it's a totally smooth continuum and and the thing is that biology offers absolutely no place to draw a clean line to say that okay uh, on the left side of this line are some parents and these parents were not whatever it was, right? Name your favorite, you know, cognitive, um, conscious, whatever you like. And then and then they had an offspring and bam, on the other side of that, the offspring's on the other side of that line and now you have true, whatever it is that people think of as true cognition, right? So, so biology offers no support for any kind of line like that, no support evolutionarily, no support developmentally. We all started life as a single cell. Gradually, we became this thing that now makes, makes claims about um, its, uh, its, its centralized cognitive states and, and its beliefs and so on. And so there's no line to be placed there, and there's no line that can be placed anywhere now that we understand chimerism and engineering. So, so that's my 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 emphasis is on this these kind of smooth transitions, which tell us that uh, it's 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 really impossible to operate in these in these tight binary categories as if they were, uh, you know, some sort of some sort of natural kind because because they're not. Everything everything changes smoothly, and we need an invariant. We need a way to think about these things that is not tied to the frozen accidents of evolution uh, as, as far as how, how we got here.
1: What I also found was very promising based on your research and also um, on the paper that you write that we don't need to know every single detail in order to come up with solutions, how to, for example, in the future, treat um, different disor- disorders we just need to find the right triggers in order to um, make the system uh, repair um, itself or you know, have some cells that come in and repair the system. Could you tell us a little bit about this?
3: Yes, yes, uh, that's, that's, that's right. And so, so one of the key um, concepts in this, uh, in this TAME framework is this idea of the axis of persuadability so let's just let's just imagine that for a second and then uh, and then I'll tell you that I'll I'll talk about how how this relates to the biomedical uh, side of things the axis of persuadability asks us to uh, for any system that you come across instead of uh, having sort of pre um, preconceptions about um, what you think it should be or how, how, how uh, agential intelligent and so on it should be to actually do experiments to find out where on that scale it is and the scale has to do with uh, what are the different types of tools that you can use to control the system when and control I use very broadly, meaning to get it to do something other than what it's doing now in a a defined way. So so on the left side of this continuum are things that basically are very simple machines like like clocks, for example. What, What defines these machines is the idea that you are not going to control them in any way other than through physical rewiring. So the hardware is your only option. So if you have a mechanical clock, you are not going to convince it of anything. You are not going to train it with rewards and punishments. You are not going to um, do, you know, uh, reprogram it. All, you, all If you want to control that device or interact with that device, the, the, your only choice is to understand all of the details of how it works. And if you want to build one, you have to uh, specifically uh, micromanage every part of what you think it's going to do from the parts. Okay, that's, that's on the left side of the, of the spectrum. Then, then, you move on to something. Uh, For moving to moving rightward, you reach uh, the next step. is is very interesting. It's something like a thermostat. So the interesting thing about a thermostat, which are systems that can do um, homeostasis, right? They can do these these loops, these homeostatic loops. What's interesting about those devices is that you can actually do better than rewiring because you can recognize that they are working towards a specific set point. Meaning that there's a state of affairs that's recorded somewhere as a memory of the set point. It's, it's um, uh, encoded in some kind of a physical medium. And you have an interesting uh, uh, possibility there. What you can do is you can control the system by changing the set point by learning to read and write that set point, not by rewiring anything. So this is the way we Uh, control our thermostats right when you want the room to get warmer you don't have to rewire the whole thing from scratch you just go and you change what the set point is you say okay now the temperature range that i want is 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 higher so so go ahead and notice something interesting there that uh by here's the trade-off by recognizing that what you're dealing with is a goal-seeking system you don't need to now know exactly how it works the only thing you need to know is how to read and write the set point. And when you alter the set point, the rest of the system can be completely mysterious and it doesn't matter because you are no longer micromanaging it. You are relying on the fact that this thing has the competency to implement whatever goal state that you're going to put in. So that's pretty interesting. That's a, that's a new um, sort of great transition on the, uh, on, the, on the scale of persuadability. Then you move further and you might encounter, and I'm, I'm only giving you sort of the main uh, waypoints. There's, there's lots of others in between. But um, then, then, then you can you can uh, move further to creatures that actually have preferences, and what you can do there is apply rewards and punishments. Now, this is even better from the perspective of control because you need to know even less about how it works. In fact, people have been training animals for thousands of what, probably ten thousand years. They've been training, uh, maybe longer, training animals, and the only thing you need to be able to do this is to know, A, to recognize that, that these creatures are, in fact, uh, learning agents that, that have preferences, and B, to know something about the currency that motivates them. What do they like and what do they not like? What are the rewards and punishments, right? once you know that you don't need to know any neuroscience you have you 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 could train them and have zero clue about what's actually going on in their in their brains or anywhere else in fact you don't need to know that they have brains you don't need to know where they store their memories you don't need to know how they perform their homeostasis you you, you don't need to know any of that you can motivate them and through behavior shaping and rewards and punishments and then if you go, keep going further along this line you may reach something like a human where you have a next great transition where you can interact with those creatures with rational argument so you're not directly rewarding and punishing them you are giving them information and you are giving them logically structured uh reasons to do things and uh you are taking um you're you're offloading all of the all of the hard work onto the fact that you believe they are to some extent rational agents and they will alter their own behavior once they become convinced of whatever it is that you just told them you don't need to provide rewards and punishments. They're gonna handle even that themselves. So what you see, you can see what's going on here. As you move rightward on this continuum, uh, the amount of stuff you need to know goes down, the amount of effort you need to put in goes down, the um, level of micromanagement you apply goes down, and what you gain is this this ability to uh get more bang for your buck so to speak the ratio of how much effort you need to put in to communicate with this system versus what can come out of it the complex you know all the way on the right of the uh of the of the spectrum one word that you might say to the to somebody uh, that that could have you know very low energy content uh, um, event of to, to say something to them could 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 cause them to uh kickstart a a, a massive amount of effort that they're going to then spearhead for for years if they become convinced of uh, you you know what you're talking about and you didn't have to micromanage it or put the energy and so so this is very important so now now let's get to the biomedicine part um the key part of this whole uh this whole framework is that we should when we encounter something we should figure out where on the continuum it lands so nowadays molecular medicine all of molecular medicine is predicated on the assumption that everything is way on the left of that continuum. Everything is a simple machine. So uh, what that means is that people will, of course, try to control it, meaning control medical outcomes, by manipulation of the lowest level components by rewiring the hardware. And thus, we have stem cell biology. We have genomic editing. We have rewiring of pathways of of, uh, protein signaling networks, all of this stuff it's all hardware level stuff because people assume that that's the only way to interact with these systems meaning that their intelligence is or and, and cognitive sophistication i mean they will say it's zero but but on my on my scale whatever it's it's at least very very low that's when that's what everybody assumes the what what we've been able to do in our group is by saying um, well you can't assume that let's actually find out where some of these things are then it once you've said that it actually opens and so this is why i like these kind of frameworks because they open, they're, they're not restrictive, they're, they're, they open you to new possibilities and they help you do new experiments. So we've done new experiments. For example, we asked a simple question, uh, if you take a, a simple gene regulatory network model, which is just basically a bunch of genes that turn each other on and off in the network, everybody assumes that that's kind of a paradigm case of a, of a, of a, of a, of a fairly dumb machine. Well, it turns out that uh, they can actually learn. They have six different kinds of learning capacity just just there just 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 already at the level of uh, gene regulatory networks you already have basic learning capacity what we've also done is we've asked what if uh what if the ability of certain uh, let's say animals to regenerate to after damage or of the embryo to um, repair after damage you know an early a mammalian embryo, you can divide them in let's say in half and you get two perfectly normal monozygotic twins there are many examples of this kind of incredible plasticity so we said what what if all of this is a kind of homeostatic process it's not ne- it's not just feed forward emergence of from you know of complexity from simple rules i mean of course that also happens but but what if it's more than that what if it's actually a process of remembering what the target morphology is supposed to be what is the shape supposed to be and then an error minimization scheme just like a thermostat that Uh, that tries to reach it after damage. And if you do that, like all of the examples that I've given you, you can say, okay, I'm not going to uh, rewire it. I'm gonna leave the genetics alone. I'm not going to change the hardware. What I'm going to do is try to learn to read and write this uh, set point if there is one. And we looked for it and we found it. We found a bioelectrically encoded pattern memory that works as a kind of, um, it's a sort of uh, coarse grained descriptor of what the correct anatomy should be in the, in the number of cases that we've looked at. And the system basically just tries to build whatever that says. And so what we've shown is that you can actually rewrite that information, not changing the machine at all, not not changing the genome, not not altering the cells in any way, but just rewrite that set point, that electrical information that the network is keeping. And sure enough, the cells will build other things. And when you do that, you can you can induce uh, limb regeneration in animals that normally don't regenerate limbs you can fix uh defects of of the brain and face the the birth defects of the brain and face you can produce uh, two-headed flatworms and six-legged frogs and cause gut tissue to make a perfect eye all of these things are possible even though we don't know how to micromanage it and i think for regenerative medicine we don't want to micromanage it i don't think in our lifetime we're going to know how to Um, uh, control all of the thousands of genes in in the millions of cells that you need to control to let's say make a new eye for someone or make an arm you know that's we're not going to be able to do that we don't need to the system already knows how to do it what we need to do is uh, learn how to motivate the cells to do it so so that's and, and this and this is just the beginning i mean the question we are still not done asking about what else is possible right where on this uh, where on this on this axis of, of cognitive capacity cells and tissues are, it may be that they're f- further to the right than we even thought. Um, but for now, this is what we've been doing. We've been trying to understand how to uh, motivate cellular collectives to reach uh, desired regions of anatomical option space for, for regenerative applications.
2: Yeah, I got, May I ask a question? Sure. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, um, Dr. Levine, yeah, of course, I've been following your work for more than two years now. And aside from morphogenesis, I'm a big fan of complex systems. So, mm. but I'm really overwhelmed and I'm amazed that the, the, the uh, reading the paper and looking at the new work that you have, because I cannot catch up with the developments that's happening. It's happening so fast. And yeah. recently, I've read um, about uh, your work on regenerating an amputated frog's uh, limb. And uh, um, yeah, I think you put it in an actuator and you, you placed some cocktails on it and tried to let it grow back in about uh, 18 months. was that Can you tell us a little more about it? Sure, sure.
3: Um, yeah, so, so what we are interested in in the regenerative medicine side is really to identify triggers. We don't want to micromanage the process because, as I said, I don't think it's feasible to do. Uh, we want to find triggers or subroutine calls of specific um, uh, complex patterning cascades. So in the frog, so, so frogs, unlike salamanders, frogs do not normally regenerate their legs as adults. So we took uh, adult, adult frogs and this was this was work there was a lot of people that that contributed to this in, in my group and and also when um, we did this together with uh, David Kaplan's group a uh, close collaborator and I should by the way I should I should make a disclaimer from all this that um David and I have a, a spin-off company called uh, Morphaceuticals Inc and so uh that's that's just kind of a disclaimer that I have to do when I give these talks um and we we wanted to do two things uh right after right after injury we wanted to figure out a signal and then a delivery method for that signal that shifts the decision making of those cells instead of a scar uh i want you to rebuild the uh, the organ that goes here and so we we found one uh we so 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 david kaplan's group made this 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 thing we call the biodome it's basically a wearable bioreactor it fits onto the amputation wound and uh and then so so their job is to make the dome and then we figured out a cocktail of uh of drugs that uh that was supposed to uh kickstart the process and, and 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 shift the decision of those cells towards limb growth the coolest to to me the coolest thing about that uh, that study was was this the biodome was on that leg for 24 hours that's it so from the from the time we put from after amputation we put on the biodome and we leave it there for 24 hours then we take it off after that we never touch the leg again it, that that initial 24-hour signal and and maybe it could have even been shorter we didn't we didn't try shorter we, ju, we just did the one the one trial uh 20, 24 hours that that 24 hours caused uh the legs to grow for 18 months and they might have even kept going we had to stop and, and you know and, and and just and write up the paper but but 18 months of leg growth uh following just a 24-hour induction so to me that's very very important because it uh, begins to validate this, this, this concept that what you can do is you can provide uh very brief triggers in that first 24 hours when those cells are deciding what to do, you, you shift that and then you don't touch it again. It's not that we're going in and controlling stem cells directly or saying which tissues should be where, uh, or, or anything like that. It's really a very early process. And then you get this massive amount of uh, leg growth from a system that already knows how to grow legs. And yeah, and so that, that's what I think was, was interesting about that paper.
4: Just as a kind of, an, uh, I guess, tangent question to that, um, when looking at something like scar tissue, uh, would it be feasible to say, um, let's say, look at some scar tissue and then remove it and then apply that same technique? Would you expect it to uh, perform the same, uh, regrow the, the, the limb, as it were?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, with one with one caveat, and 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 we're we're currently, uh, you know, obviously exactly how it's going to play out in humans we don't know yet. But but that's what we in in as a part of morphosuticals, and we're currently in experiments in a mammalian model. So we're now we're now in mice with all of this, and hopefully eventually humans. Um, the thing with with scar is this, I, bioelectrics in in general. I think from everything that we've seen is a uh control modality at the organ level not at the cell level so people sometimes people sometimes say oh can you use this to produce uh, a specific cell type for let's say parkinson's or for something else maybe but i think that's not really what bioelectrics is for natively i think it's not for specifying individual cell types it's for telling the cells what it is that they should be building so if we have you know so for wound healing or for skin repair or for clearing out we you know unwanted extracellular matrix during a scar in, in a scar i'm not sure that bioelectrics is ideal for that however if you're dealing with a situation where you need to tell the cells to build a whole organ. It's not just a matter of specific cells. That that's where that's where I think the system is going to shine. So so now now that's what it looks like now. I could be wrong, and so maybe maybe at some point, uh, you know, scar um, repair is something that's doable. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just that that's not this. This is not about individual uh, cell types or or matrix or anything like that. It's about respecifying what the cells are going to build.
4: Yeah, yeah, because I'm just thinking of, like, uh, like people who have uh, burns or other injuries, uh, they've already had scars grow over the area, and yeah. if you removed that scar tissue, that could certainly improve the quality of life if you were able to kind of regenerate their uh, various tissues uh, to the way that they were originally. So that's very exciting. It's very much Star Trek, so hell yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Hi, <clears throat> hi, Michael. Uh, hi. It's it's great seeing you again. Um, I think that we talked about one of your Xenobot, the Xenobob projects that you were doing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's really great to see an, another perspective, which is uh, also as illuminating and thought-provoking. Um, I had one question, which is, um, you mentioned something about um, the sort of like the the consistency and coherence from single cell all to all the Way up to the like a multicellular organization such as us, um, that we do have something in common when it comes to um, solving particular problems or addressing the particular problems. And you also talked about the um, different mechanisms which are currently been employed in, um, you know, in tackling those problems, which is sort of like a, you know, removing gene a single gene at a time and uh, probably investigating the, um, the <clears throat> The physiological um, response, or the essentially, like you know, the the change that the organism will go through, is not probably a, a very um, a good paradigm. And I think most people in neuroscience, because that's uh, probably the area that I feel comfortable in, um, that also recognize this, that. Knocking out some genes is not probably going to solve everything. You're just going to make a crude assumption as to what the behavioral and um, other responses might be based on just simply omitting one single gene. But my question to you is that um, for complex networks, like what is your um, what is your recommendation or to kind of error correct um, that? And by that I mean, like for example, we do have like like for human brains, for example, right? Um, if you have lack of dopamine um, surplus or a dopamine supply, that you get Parkinson's disease or something like that, which is sort of like working on a, a network level as opposed to, um, or at least like cascading into like a network level as opposed to just a single cell issue. But but what 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 do you think? Like, is the best way to kind of address? Um, you know, when a network is not behaving the the way they expect it. and by network, I mean it could be multicellular organization
3: yeah i I think that uh, and and of course, uh, you know everything I say is not meant to suggest that this is the only way of doing it or that we know everything about it or what to do in fact, we, we don't I think I think this is just the, the beginning of uh, we we know hardly anything about most of the important questions uh, but but the strategy that i <clears throat> I always prefer. A uh, as as much as possible, I try to I try to ask what is the highest level at which I can control this. So if uh, if there is if there is a way to do it via training, if there's a way to do it via. Uh, You know some things I mean neuroscientists are actually really really good at this because they're comfortable with the idea that there are multiple levels of organization so for example you've got people in neuroscience studying specific molecules and synapses somebody else is studying network activity and somebody else is doing psychotherapy right all of these are ways to manipulate the system at different levels and different problems are best addressed at different levels sometimes all you need all sometimes the best way to do it is to uh adjust the levels of a particular neurotransmitter that that's fine other times uh you want to do some kind of um cognitive behavioral therapy where you're literally going to train uh people into specific behaviors other times somebody you know there there are many different ways you know if you think about depre- de, um, for example depression right some people the cause might be literally a uh a neurotransmitter imbalance somebody else might be in that state because they're a deep thinker and uh various uh, skeptical arguments uh have convinced them that um you know they're just in a it, it's just you know they're kind of in a in a in a philosophical uh, d- deep hole where they find it hard to motivate themselves to do anything given that the universe is going to burn out so you know you're not going to treat that with a uh, with a neurotransmitter um, adjustment so in all of these cases you want to find the optimal level of uh level of of control and f- i think the, for, for medical purposes at the higher you can go the better because then you are much more likely to produce a good effect as opposed to trying to micromanage the thousands or millions of different components that you have to be in charge of when you're addressing it at a lower level that's how that's how you avoid all of the side effects you know i mean there's a whole there's a whole other thing we could talk about but um all of the side effects of, of modern drugs and the way that the way that uh, pharmaceuticals are used nowadays is basically at the lowest level to try to treat symptoms Right. We have we have very few, if any, uh, other than other than antibiotics, you have very few, uh, if any, drugs that actually fix anything. They're, they're mostly designed to keep the symptoms down while you're taking them. And as a result, of course, other stuff crops up. You got all these crazy side effects because you're trying to micromanage everything yourself. And it's extremely difficult. Uh, the future of all of this is. Understanding uh, the the learning capacity, understanding the motivations of all the different subsystems that you're working with, whether it's uh, kidneys, livers, brain tissue, it doesn't matter, and trying to trying to address, trying to push them into, into health states by uh, at, at as as far as as far uh, up as you can, as opposed to trying to uh, trying to manage the the individual outcomes.
6: I had a question. Um... And it, it's it, it's an asser- it comes from an assertion that I've had from some time, but I need to just put it into some context. Um, what's what I find fascinating about your approach, particularly your the continuum from uh, from c- complexity across um, from multicellular organisms right up to humans, um, in the in the sense of uh, general AI applications, which I often end up evaluating in industries where uh, where it has a very uh, decided engineering context in the defense industry, for example. Um, the assertion is that you don't get general AI without a body. And it seems from your work, you, you might agree with that, but um, it there's a very practical engineering sense that if control systems that are going to make decisions uh, rapidly, um, if they are going to need to abstract and, um, and you know, as I, I thought your construction of the uh, axis of persuadability was brilliant, but if they're going to, uh, if we're going to get control systems uh, engineered to be more to the right on that spectrum, Is there um, a need or would you agree or at least reflect on the assertion that that it has to be coupled into a physical system um, in the sense that the um, timing matters coupling into, uh, you know, having an actual physical sensory control loop is critical. And, And I say that even in the sense that taking computational algorithms into hardware in the loop scenarios it's it's still often a leap because uh, any any thread can run out of time and you're up against a hard clock and you just don't get that time but I, I think it might be deeper than that um, because even with real-time systems you can remember where you were and pick up you can't um, be so violently as disturbed as to forget what you were doing and have to recover um, so I just thought you know in that in that sense uh the assertion is you don't really get general uh mind without a body um what would you what would you say to that
3: yeah very very uh, very good very important point um okay here here's here's what i think uh i think that's true that that you do you do in fact need a body however i want to redefine what a body is and i want to uh, let go of the assumption that it's a physical body and what i mean by that is that uh in fact in fact n- none of us really know that we have a body right this is you know an old uh, kind of a very old old idea and we've we've now seen that uh biology is uh extremely modular people people have taken um cells in a petri dish and connected them with electrodes to a flight simulator game uh on an xbox and then you sort of every time the plane crashes you shock the cells and guess what they learn to do over time they learn to keep the plane afloat and so this, this kind of thing, I, the, the loop is there. I think the loop is absolutely critical. I think some constraints on that loop are very important to, mo- to, uh, to motivate the agent. So you have to do this correctly. It's not sort of any old, um, and any old, uh, virtual setup will do. However, I, I think that we are all operating in, uh, in virtual worlds. And this is, this is very close to the ideas of, uh, of Don Hoffman, for example, where, um, none of us interface to the uh, to the external world directly our perceptual systems don't tell us actually what's out there all we get is various kinds of user illusions that are that are um, helpful for us to, to uh, manage our, our sensory inputs and so uh, I, I, I view I view intelligence as competency in navigating space, but it doesn't have to be three-dimensional space. So for example uh cells will will navigate um metabolic space they will navigate physiological space um they will navigate morphospace space or anatomical space right this the the, the, the configuration the, you know all the possible configurations of of um of, of your body um in fact uh we we even have robots now that navigate these various spaces for example a smart insulin pump Is really a robot a breitenberg vehicle that drives around in physiological space because it measures various states and it applies corrections and it has states it likes and states it doesn't like so um, all of these things have a degree of intelligence that operate in in all kinds of spaces i mean cells can operate in the extremely high dimensional gene expression space right the space of all possible gene expressions and they find uh, they they, um, navigate it with various degrees of competency meaning that uh under novel perturbations and in novel environments they still can get to where they're going and and of course sometimes they screw up and so on uh all of these things are intelligence but it doesn't have to be three-dimensional space and i think two two important things to say about that one is that evolution makes use of this extensively so we started out as uh as, as as protists that basically could only handle uh a metabolic space and then evolution pivoted those same strategies things like run and tumble and so on uh, pivoted those same strategies to then handle other spaces for example transcriptional space uh, developmental um, anatomical space and eventually when brains and muscles uh, evolve then and only then you get the ability to navigate three-dimensional space by moving around by the time by the time that arose and the kind of environment that we think of as behavior, right, the three dimensional environment. By the time we were able to move around in there, evolution was already old hat at solving solving uh, general intelligence problems just in other spaces for creatures that physically don't obviously move or do anything. Now, the other important thing to think about is this when we look in the world and we see something. And we try to take a guess as to how much intelligence it has what kind of problems it's solving what space is it working in we are basically taking an iq test ourselves because our estimate of this is only as smart as uh, is only as good as as our own ability to recognize this and our ability to recognize that stuff is really bad um because we have we we grew up as, a, as individuals and as a species with all of our sense organs pointing outward into the three-dimensional space. We're really good at detecting agency in the three-dimensional world. We all know the difference between a bowling ball and a mouse, and uh, all, all animals immediately have this, have this intuitive feel for what they can expect from various objects in the world because they, they, you know, they're, they're used to moving things moving around and, and dealing with, with that. Imagine, imagine if we grew up uh, from, from our earliest days with a biofeedback sense that told you what, what your pancreas was doing at any given moment right imagine if the way you have eyesight you also had another sense which uh had a rich data stream on what was happening to your bloodstream and what your pancreas was doing about it i think if we had senses like that we would have no problem recognizing um intelligence and physiological spaces we would know that this is an intelligent object that it has uh particular things it's capable of other things that fool it we would know ways to <clears throat> ways to help it along we would know ways to to, to trick it all the things we do with 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 conventional intelligences, we are just not good at recognizing them in unconventional spaces. Um, same thing for transcription. You know, we look at cells. I mean, I could tell you specific examples of cells doing amazing things to figure out what genes that they should be turning on and off, and novel solving novel problems. Um, that that kind of general AI is already here, and it absolutely requires a body, but but not the kind of body that we think of. And so. I think, based on the work on hybrids and um, instrumentized neurons, you know, they play Pong, they do all kinds of things. Based on based on all of that, I think that uh, biology does not care what kind of space it's working on. It's very good at porting intelligence between spaces. And I don't think it cares whether this space is, quote-unquote, uh, 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 physical, meaning it's a three-dimensional space, or it's a virtual space, such as maybe, a, a, you know, a kind of a VR setup or you know, a brain in a vat kind of situation or a transcriptional space or any of this other stuff. So I think that that's that's my sort of long-winded answer to that. I I think, yes, you need a body, but bodies are not what we think they are.
4: That's interesting. That kind of uh, reinforces a recent paradigm shift where the microbiome itself is uh, sometimes seen as another sensory organ, and the kind of information that we're getting from it could perhaps be harnessed and better understood. So... Uh, this seems to be going in that direction. That's very exciting. I'm curious if you think that there's, because uh, you said it was an electrical, electrochemical uh, reaction. Um, do you think there there would be any possibility for any sort of uh, electromagnetic uh, interaction, or have you looked at that in any way? Um,
3: it, uh, I mean, basically, the thing with bioelectricity, bioelectricity is not some um, magical uh, medium that's required for, for intelligence. What's, what's important about bioelectricity is that it's a very convenient piece of physics with which to, to do uh, feedback loops, memory integration across space. I mean, evolution uses it all over the place, in brains the rest of your body. We use it for our computers. It, it has useful properties. And so I, I focus on the bioelectricity because it's a great way to illustrate some of the points I'm trying to make. I'm sure there are other media I'm sure you could, in theory, do the same things with with electromagnetics. I certainly have not. I don't think anybody has. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying there's not um, some you know giant cloud somewhere in the universe that uses uh, magnetic phenomena for the same to to be intelligent in the same way that we use electrical uh, synapses between cells to scale up our our goal-directed activities. Um, I'm sure it's possible, but but no, we we've not done anything like that. I don't I don't think anyone has
4: yet. Yeah, I think the the closest thing was uh, Lee Cronin talking about uh, potential molten uh, creatures that use or harness electromagnetic fields for that kind of computation. But that was a very exotic, kind of uh, far out there, little promotional science video that I've seen. But thank you. I don't see
3: why not. I don't see why not. All all I know is that we are are really bad at identifying uh, agency in unfamiliar guises. To, to the point where to the point where people, you know, especially scientists are willing to make um, armchair pronouncements about what can and can't be an agent and uh, and we, we really need to get, get better at it.
7: Well, very fascinating. Yes Willie really speaking if I may chime in. I have three questions, but I came a bit late. Uh, to the room, so I'm sorry if you already made some statement and my uh, questions are redundant. The first is about uh, the status, the second about maturity, and the last about kind of epistemological uh, question. Uh, If I get it right, the backstory is you were researching this Xenobot thing, and actually you are now, as a side effect, have a new paradigm uh, eric just also used the term paradigm uh maybe I mean, in therapy in medicine
3: the... so 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 no so so temporally that's that's not how how it happened this um the uh the 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 ideas around this this paradigm i've been working on this for uh probably twenty years or so and and I've been sort of very slowly rolling them out uh for for various ways we can we can discuss about the sociology of science but um the, the xenobots have been a very recent uh, kind of a very recent invention. That certainly certainly helps illustrate these points and drives some new uh, some new aspects of the framework. But this this did not this was not created by the discovery of the xenobots. No, this this predates that okay. by, by many years.
7: Okay. Okay. And of of course you stand on the shoulders of all this. Uh, uh, I, I think you even mentioned Reni or morphogenesis and uh, other kinds of system theory. But uh, what I've uh, had uh, the impression, uh, but I did not read your paper, sorry for that, uh, so far, um, that because you did not mention cell communication, maybe you're leaving this as a too simplified paradigm or framework, for instance. This is one question. And uh, what I meant with paradigm is uh, that um, it sounded like you have uh, found (sighs) Oh, sorry, (laughs) in the kitchen. Uh, You you discovered a new kind of interaction between also, uh, say, uh, the doctor and the patient, because you were talking about these trigger points and uh, calling the subroutines. And this is a a totally new paradigm to do medicine, if it's uh, this what I've got. And uh, this was about the first question about the paradigmatic status, uh, which could be for medicine. That's what I mentioned, not not in the research program you are doing.
3: Sure. So, yeah, so, 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 um, you know, feel free to connect with me offline and I will, I will send you a bunch of pointers to work. So, so first of all, the, the cell to cell communication, yeah, it's absolutely critical. We've been working on it for, for, for two decades now. It's, it's absolutely critical. We have lots of work on it and and i think i think you're right i think there is a new way to um, uh, to, to look at this as as uh, as a, as a new mode of interaction between uh, between medical interventions and the patient we have lots of work on this and been very practical you know in regenerative medicine and cancer mm. re- remodeling all of this stuff so, mm. yeah yeah i think i think yeah. you're right
7: yeah okay and and what you talked about the micromanagement as a as a as an opposite thing like if you found the right points and this reminds me even uh, sorry for that to the trigger points in some uh, more alternative med- medicine space like acupuncture uh, so maybe it is related in a way that there was uh, some discovery related i don't know i don't want to discuss now but uh, the other thing is which is the maturity status of this is it like um, you are in an more alchemistic state here that you are experimenting and don't really know what will happen next. Uh, This is also super valuable because uh, this is the way forward in science uh, to really keep on track uh, without knowing what will happen, just experiment or are right. you I mean, already no, in the stage to have a kind of a kind of periodic system what what you do with the cells and what you do with his uh, transmitters or whatever signal uh, messenger uh, stuff or like this yeah
3: yeah yeah uh, I, I as of as of the last uh, six or seven years we've been in the latter stage basically we are now to the point where we have uh, computational models that tell us exactly what to do for specific cases now uh, I will say that all of this is at a very early stage because we can only do this in a very limited number of cases. But I'll just give you a very, um, a very uh, kind of simple uh, example of what we did. So, uh, if you, if you look at uh, what controls the development of the early brain in the, um, let's say, in the in the frog uh, tadpole, the early brain, which is a very complex organ, it needs to know where it should form and how big it should be and what its structure is. Okay. And we found out that um, there are a variety of birth defects that can be induced by either mutation or exposure to teratogens, let's say alcohol, nicotine, many different things that, that screw up this, this ability and they have terrible brain defects and no behavior and so on. What we were able to do was make a very specific computational model of what goes wrong with the bioelectrical signaling between the cells that causes them to not be able to remember what the size and shape of the brain is supposed to be. And having created that model, we were able to ask them to, to basically invert the model and ask it a question, which is which ion channel proteins would we need to open and close to get back to the correct electrical uh, performance of that network? And uh, the, the model was able to suggest a specific channel that, would, that it predicted would give back the proper uh, patterning behavior of that electrical network. Once you know the channel, you can go to your shelf and pick out a specific drug that opens that channel. And we, we did it, and uh, sure enough, uh, everything became correct. So the brain structure was repaired, the brain function was repaired, the animals got their IQs back, meaning they could learn at rates indistinguishable from controls. So what you have here, and this was this was 2018, so this was like four years ago. So what this shows is that, at least in some cases, we are able to make a very specific computer model that tells you exactly what's wrong, and, it, and, and you can invert it. To look for interventions and make predictions about exactly how to fix it. Now, like I said, this is we are only able to do this in a few specific cases. So we've done some tumor reprogramming, we've done brain and face repair, we've done limb regeneration, uh, a couple of other things we can talk about. We do not have this in the most general case. I mean, sometime in the, fu- in the future, you will have uh, we we what you know what we're working on, and hopefully hopefully I'll, I'll someday I'll get to see it. Uh, this. Um, uh, it is this platform where you basically can, can pick any organ in the body and, and, uh, and get a prediction about what uh, bioelectrical state needs to be induced to repair that. And then you can pick an existing drug. And there are an enormous number of, of what, what I call electroceuticals, which are ion channel drugs that are already approved for human use. And the, mod- the computational model will tell you which one. Someday it will be universal. Right now, we can only do it for a small number of, um, a small number of indications. But it's it's very important to understand that this is not random poking around. We are not just doing random perturbations mm. to see what happens. That's how we started in you know in in ninety seven ninety eight. That's what I was doing. But but we've gone very far since then. And at this point, at least in some of these cases, it's very much rational control. It's not uh, it's not random. Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, what pops up in my mind is uh, it's a kind of interventional framework, a new type of interventional framework how do you call it or do you have a name for this concept that general concept you are doing now yeah
3: do yes. so, so yeah so so the framework as as a whole is called uh, it's it's called t-a-m-e uh, yeah yeah of course you know, yeah that's what is mm. mine everywhere now now yeah. we have you know in the bi- now now you got to realize when uh, when i publish papers in um regenerative biology and medicine journals and when i talk to uh, people for for our spin-off companies and so on I don't talk about any of this stuff this is these are these are things that the majority of uh, people who are really into uh, molecular medicine and so on they, they really don't want to hear about any of this
6: and mm-hmm. so I have
3: a, I have a different uh, sort of um, a different lens on all the stuff that I can that I can talk about when we're when we're uh, and 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 now you know when I started all this I didn't talk about any of this at all everything was, well that's a whole other discussion about those kind of sociology mm-hmm. of science but mm-hmm. but 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 what really drives all of these approaches is really keeping in mind what kind of agent are we dealing with what is its intellect um in, in in intellectual sophistication what are the motivating uh, trigger points what does it know how to do what does it what what are the preferences that's the sort of that's the sort of approach but uh, you know of course uh This is uh, this is you know certain Mm -hmm. audiences are interested in that and others are not. Yeah, sure,
7: but this will change soon, I guess, uh, because I think it is a a new interventional framework. How to do? uh, How to? interact with organisms in general or uh, or tissue and so on. And so this is why I think this room could be, I'm not kidding, a historic, because it's, it's introducing a paradigm. Um, of course, you are doing this for years, I know, but this is kind of a pub- public space. And uh, the last question now is about the metaphor or the modeling or the epistemology, because what popped also up in my mind was a kind of, um, yeah, a metaphor of the conductor of an orchestra. If you think about uh, that an uh, orchestra could not uh, really um, uh, be uh, able to play a symphony, so to speak, if the conductor is 500 meters away. Uh, then it's like uh, we, we've done medicine before. And in the future, maybe we just found a way to have this little stick for the conductor and people um, in this way, the m- musicians are the cells are uh, listening in the right way. And you know what to do with your stick. And then of course, it's very efficient because because as you already said, uh, like you have low energy to um, to uh, introduce, uh, for instance, to persuade a person on a rational basis, and in the same way, you can, if you find the right trigger points and so on, um, persuade, so to speak, uh, some cells to um, rejuvenate or something like this. So, do you think um, because you 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 uh, you had this acronym? Um, mind everywhere yeah it's it's like uh, of course no no not esoterical way or metaphysical way but it's just a uh, next stage of systems um, theory that you found uh, something like yeah similar b- bit to attractor nets or something like this uh, which are like a uh, uh, spirit or yeah uh, and i avoid this metaphysical term but Exactly yesterday, Joscha Bach was uh, on, a, on a Zoom call, and uh, there was also von Glassersfeld, the old guy. You probably know him <laughs> from uh, at least from literature. And they were talking about ejection uh, just to connect this. And maybe uh, it's interesting uh, to see that um, what you call a mind is a metaphor for what's going on in the living systems, where they are, they are chimera or whether they are very basic tissues or they are cancer or whatsoever. That's an interesting thing. But maybe we need a new metaphor that people don't think they they, uh, talking too metaphysical. (laughs) So thank you for for your uh, brilliant answers.
0: Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your comments.
0: Yeah, um, so I have uh, one comment. I just wanted to know what do you think about this? So I was reading uh, this very famous book from, um, from Francisco Varela, like principles of uh, biological autonomy. Yep. And there he defines kind of uh, like uh, autonomous systems and control systems. And uh, for the control systems, he says that the fundamental paradigm of interaction is instruction. And the unsatisfactory results are errors. And for the autonomous system, he says that the fundamental paradigm of interaction is a conversation, and a unsatisfactory result is uh, are sorry a uh, breaches of understanding. So I I found that what you said from the beginning that like people in uh, molecular uh, biology were Trying to do this kind of from the like um, let the, let's say the like the the smaller components kind of try to do an input and out, output um, let's say process a sort of control process. But what I as far as I understand, what you've realized, what you've discovered is that this um, bioelectricity works very much like a conversation with the cells, and you are. Uh, like having a conversation using all these cognitive concepts, kind of translating them to bioelectricity concepts. Is it more or less correct?
3: Yeah, I mean, w- w- one of the things you can do, because uh, the, the, the basic fact is that ev- everything the, that, that brain uh, cells do, so neurons, everything that neurons do, uh, was not invented fresh when neurons uh, appeared in evolution. All of this is extremely old. So the brain um, basically co-opted all of its tricks from much earlier uh, cells that were already using electricity to communicate in networks. It's just that they were using it to solve problems in anatomical space instead of in three dimensional space by movement. And so that means that what you can often do is take any neuroscience paper, uh, put it into Microsoft Word and do a find replace and you can just you can any anywhere that it says neuron you replace that with the word cell and anywhere that it says millisecond you replace that with hour and once you've done that uh you you get a very interesting a paper full of ideas for developmental biology experiments because uh the way that these things work are very very uh, very very parallel so what we have in in uh in uh, in, in cellular collectives is a kind of collective intelligence i mean so are we we are all in fact all intelligences are a collective intelligence right we are all made of parts so we happen you know the 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 so you, when you think about yourself psychologically or you're, you're referring to a collection of largely neurons uh, but there are other sort of nonverbal entities that are made up of collections of other cell types and i completely agree that uh it in the end a, a proper a kind of an optimized control policy is going to look very much like a conversation with these cells Now with not with individual cells, by the way, with with cell groups, with cellular collectives, um, the same way that you and I are not having an uh, a conversation between our individual neurons we're having a conversation with the, with a whole system. so uh, yeah, I think I think in the end that's probably what it's going to look like, but it's unclear exactly where on that uh, continuum uh these various uh, let's say developing embryos tissues whatever you're interested in where those things exactly lie this this is where experiments have to happen we cannot assume anything we have to do experiments and see which types of um interventions be they conversations be they rewards and punishments so in other words training protocols be they physical rewiring uh, which and, and many others we can we can talk about uh, which of these things is going to be the most efficient way to relate to that system I mean, the important thing is this: a lot of people, especially especially in science, are terrified of making a mistake in one direction. That is, um, I, I call this a teleophobia. You know, they're sort of it, it, it's it's terrible to to uh, ascribe too much cognition to some system, and then and then your colleagues make fun of you and all of that. But of course, going in the other direction is just as bad. If you don't recognize how much intelligence a particular system has, you are going to be in uh, terrible shape when you try to relate to it. You're going to be um, you know, wasting your time uh, and, and leaving all kinds of capabilities on the table if you are trying to relate to a complex intelligent system as if it were a clockwork, right? You're gonna, there are gonna be so many things that you are never going to do and, too many, and, and many other things that uh, will be too, just too difficult uh, for you to, to achieve. So making an, a mistake in both directions is bad. Um, we need to do our best to get to gauge the correct level of interaction and that might turn out to be conversations and it might turn out to be training and 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 who knows it might turn out to be other things we don't we don't know yet
1: I wondered if I could just point out that um, it may be even older than that so there is a biologist that de- my university at UBC, I, I can't remember her name, but she argues that um, the micro rhizome structures also have this mm. same distinction between mm. uh, conversations and instructions and that under the ground, you know, unbe- unbeknownst to, to most of us for, for, are, are all these kinds of complex interactions
2: that um, we, we tend to think of as originating in, uh, in, in, in animals and in organisms, but in fact, they're much older
3: yeah yeah, yeah, no ab- absolutely. um and, and these these uh, there are things that uh, that are happening in bacteria and uh, yeah, yeah, all, all all of these things are experimental fodder for asking what what is the maximum level of sophistication i can uh, I can take advantage of? And in some cases, it'll be high, and in some cases it will be low, but but it has to be um it has to be discovered empirically.
2: So thank you so much Michael. That was very fascinating to me. So I do have a question. Do you think that your model because I'm seeing I'm seeing here that you talk about synaptic vesicles which you introduce as an exosome and you have some description about the volume transmission. So I was just wondering, do you think that your model have a capacity for memory storing between the connection? I mean, I mean, uh, in the form of the connection between the cells, actually.
3: I mean, uh, so so I'm not sure if we're talking about the same thing. I I don't recall actually saying much about uh, really vesicles. Uh, yeah, but, that was uh, uh, you just posted where,
2: on the top. I mean.
3: Uh, we, I, I'm sorry, I don't know where, where, I'm not sure where we're looking, but, but, the, but the, for, for, for sure, I think memory, yeah, absolutely, so, so cell, cells connect, I mean, most of what we work on is gap junctional connections, right, so we work on, on, on synapses uh, made, of, made of direct electrical connectivity between cells, and for sure, there's the ability to form memory there um, in the collectives, right, in cellular, multiple cell groups connected by gap junctions absolutely can store memories, and we've, we've worked on that a lot. Vesicles, I know almost nothing about vesicles, but there may be similar capacities there.
2: Okay, thank you so much. I just found it from the, I mean, document that you just posted on the top. That was in one of the pages. I just pay attention, and that's why I just came up into this question. Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, 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 um, drop me an email. Uh, It's offline, and we can can take a look at it and and see what what we're talking about. Sure.
1: Yeah, if I may just uh, like, uh, mm-hmm. there's like a release probability differences between um, different inputs and synapses, and um, they can change uh, with um, excitability uh, changes and memory formation, like long term memory formation. So I, if I would pinpoint it to something, I would um, say, you know, there's like different, um, there's like a malleable way to change release probability of um vesicles and then neurotransmitters and and things like that but then also the uptake of neurotransmitters would probably be another way of of changing and adapting
3: yeah yeah and and that sounds perfectly reasonable I'm, i'm entirely possible but we also have to keep in mind that there are many systems that can do learning and memory that are single cell or that have no synapses at all um you know, i think i think the notion of synapse is pretty critical but what's what's important about it is not the type of synapse that we specifically um, identify in neurons what's what's critical about being a synapse is that it has historicity it's it's a uh it it's the action the the its state right now is a function of what happened previously and that you can make out of Many, I mean, transistors do that. Uh, different kinds of materials do that. There are many ways of making something that functions as a synapse, right? And neurons have one version of this, but but, but there are also many others. And that that's, I mean, gap junctions are the ancient version of that. Uh, so so are ion channels, for that matter. Lo- lots of lots of different ways to make that. In fact, at one point, I, I was I was toying with this with this idea of trying to design a, a gravitational synapse. Right? You can imagine this 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 enormous. Um, kind of a planet um, uh, solar system scale kind of thing where there's a particular state in the distribution of its orbiting bodies where uh, signals come across to it, meaning meaning some, some kind of mass will come flying by. and that permanently alters the, um, the pattern so that the next time it comes flying by something different will happen because right because the state has changed. So you can imagine building these synapses out of very diverse materials at different scales, both temporal and spatial. Uh, Yeah, there's lots of ways to make synapses.
1: Yeah, I love that about your work, you know, that uh, it doesn't restrain us to anything and, like, to any type of mind or, you know, whatever we want to call it. Um, So I really love that idea. And it's funny that you're saying that on a planetary level. I read an article yesterday about... um, uh, astrobiologist talking about the planetary intelligence. It's funny that you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a nice coincidence that you mentioned that.
3: Yeah, and and it's you know one of the things that I often think about is, um, how much how much knowledge can we have if if I mean so so we know that that we are composed of of parts. And presumably, we are also part of larger systems, which themselves may or may not be be agents. That again, experimentally, you have to, you'd have to find out. But but if we are, um, how would you know? So so for example, if 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 the solar system was in some way uh, embedded in this this in this in this giant uh, gravitational uh, uh, network structure that was propagating information, could we tell? And at at a slightly smaller scale, if we as as humans were part of some kind of functional larger network you know some kind of society network could could we tell that in fact that was happening and that it had uh, goals in the same sense that we have that is probably invisible to our to ourselves uh and and the very and and our, and our organs and so on so i i don't know if we have the the mathematical tools to even or, or if that's the sort of thing that's uh, you know forever undecidable but if we have the tools to be able to recognize that uh, you are part of a, a, a greater system that is an agent in the same way that we know we have components that are part of us that 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 you know don't 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 have access to all of the cognitive uh, information that we have as a composite system.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, w- I was shortly while I was driving in Professor um room about uh, what does life and new ways of thinking about that. And it's very interesting that you and um, his um, approach come from come from different backgrounds. But basically, uh, I think in the same way, the main idea was that we don't necessarily know what life means because we have a way too narrow way of thinking about it and seeing it. And that's why we didn't discover life around the universe so far. Um, so uh, I think to have this very broad mindset uh, will enable us to see more and discover more in the future. So yeah, thank you for that.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's great.
1: Uh, Jonathan, you came up to the stage, but before um let you speak, um, I wanted to ask Mike, Mike how much time uh, do you have left um? I didn't want to stretch your patience too much.
3: Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got eight minutes before I need to go uh, make the kids dinner, so eight minutes.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, go ahead with your question.
4: I'm sorry, I don't have a question. I just came just back in the room and I was confused that I was suddenly on stage, so apologies.
1: Oh, no problem, at all. Uh, yeah, if anyone has a last question, yeah, Eric, go ahead.
4: Yeah, hi. Um, so. I guess another question is uh, the complex relationships that all these systems have. Um, were there signals that kind of determined the the health of a system in the sense of like a pathogen? So were there ways or is there any work going in that direction? Uh, just, just curious a little bit, just because we're in the age of COVID and everyone's focused on this. And it would be really cool if, uh, you know, we could just tell our body specifically what to do since we seem to know what our body should do, but we just can't seem to communicate that to the cells themselves. So is is there any uh, future work perhaps in that direction?
3: Yeah, um, we, we don't specifically, I, I don't have anything specifically, you know, sort of exciting about that in, in terms of a pathogen infection. The one The one thing I can say is that, what we have discovered is that information about defects of all kinds, and I think probably uh, pathogen infection will end up being one of them, although I don't know that for a fact, um, is information that's available throughout the body. So, for example, uh, if, if you know, in a, in a frog, if a frog uh, loses one leg, let's say, at the knee or some other position, the opposite untouched leg that nothing has happened to it will light up with a bioelectric signal in exactly the same location where the opposite leg got injured so that in within 30 seconds the opposite leg finds out within 30 seconds what's going on on the other side so that opens that opens the way to um, what i call surrogate site diagnostics where you can look at one area and find out what's going on in some other area i have a feeling that that's just the beginning that it's probably a very rich uh very rich area um uh, harold burr back in like 1938 or so uh was was publishing papers on using a voltmeter on the skin of a rabbit to detect uh, tumors that were i think in the cervix if i recall correctly so again long range uh, detection of disturbance of, of morphogenetic order so yeah one, one thing these bioelectrical networks are very good at is propagating information across distance and and we've certainly we've certainly had um both in, in cancer and in, and in repair of birth defects shown that you can you can fix things at one location by doing manipulations at a completely different location. So uh, I think all of that will have a huge future, but the the infection is not something we've tackled yet.
4: Okay, well, that leaves some work for the rest of us since you seem to have done so much already, so.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah.
1: Okay, so i think yeah we should uh thank you like thank you very much for coming and presenting your very groundbreaking research um i think, thank you very much yeah thank you for having me yeah. thank
3: you for all the great questions those uh, very very nice uh, discussion questions thank you all
1: yeah and come back anytime as usual and um yeah uh, again i can't thank you enough i think your research is groundbreaking amazing and uh, everyone here probably wants to be you when they grow up. So thank you so much. <laughs> well,
3: well th- thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, that's that's very kind. And um, I really appreciate the interest and the support. And uh, yeah, be well, everybody.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.
7: Thank you, Michael.
3: Thanks very much. Thanks. So. all.
1: Um, just shortly to make a, um, a couple of announcements. Tonight at 10 p.m. EST, we have Dr. Kaufer. She will talk about her research um, um, about um, brain changes in the brain and anxiety and PTSD state. She was in the news everywhere with her groundbreaking research. So, um, yeah, join us at 10 p.m. EST. And she just joined Clubhouse Pulse for us, so um yeah it's it's um it will be a great talk and uh, she's a very interesting person also nice to talk to and then um, um, we will have um, tomorrow another room and it's a computational approach to um, study pathogens um, you know uh, the researcher from berkeley she uses um, machine learning to study pathogen evolution and also um, different interactions with the host so it's really important work uh, especially now in sight of having a pandemic and it will um, hopefully give us a lot of insight for the future to protect us from pathogens so um, yeah and she is very well prepared. And um, yeah, she, she's also a very great uh, researcher to talk with. And um, yeah, please come back. We have many more rooms join Science Society if you like this type of uh, discussion and learning from real scientists uh, with real publications and peer reviewed journals. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, Thank you everyone for coming. Uh, thank you so much, Cecile, Eric, Abyss, Willie, uh, BA, Lian, Parkash, Karn, and everyone in the audience. I really appreciate it. And um see you back in a few hours in four hours and a half. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Katerina. Thank
4: you.
0: Thank you. Thanks,